This is the first guest that has ever sent me out a press package, and uh, we got an early release copy of Shaheen's book, Billion, which is super cool, a story we're going to talk about, about how, I'll give you the subtitle here, how I became the king of the thrill pill cult. And as I was reading through this book, I'm about uh, three-fourths, two-thirds of the way done with it, uh, I got very much like a Wolf of Wall Street slash catch-me-if-you-can type um, type vibe, and then you told me it's going to likely be made into a movie here at some point in the future, so... Thanks, thanks, first of all, for being on the show. And and let's just start there. Like, where's the book come from? What's the story of Billions? And what do we need to know about you? Yeah, I love that. Okay, thanks for having me on, Scott. Super, super happy to be on your show, man. I, I've watched a lot of your stuff, so I'm excited. I started off as a teenager. I came here as an immigrant from Iran. My family fled Iran, literally. I, I literally remember running to the plane. And we ended up here in the States. And that was great for a number of years. And then sometime in the early 90s, I decided, dude, uh, this isn't going to be working for me. Like, school sucked. Uh, My folks wanted me to become a doctor or a lawyer. All Persian parents want their kids to be, like, a doctor. That's like... Yeah, this is like the model minority immigrant. You had show show the family that you made it and you're a doctor, right? That's the fucking pinnacle, right? My dad would look at people and he'd be like, look at Mr. Rafsanjari. He has Mercedes and big house. Like that fucker's worked for 20 years, like cutting people's balls open and he doesn't sleep and the bank owns the fucking house, dad. But to him, that was the pinnacle of success. So I left trying to find my fame and fortune. And I was 15 years old, just bailed, quit school, didn't have any friends, didn't have any money, and basically figured out how to survive. I slept in abandoned buildings. I slept in uh, condos that they were building. LA was in a building phase, so I figured out how to get into the lock boxes. And by the way, kids, don't try this at home. This is like early 90s, right? There's a big, early 90s. big building boom. Yeah. Big building boom. And I realized that, you know, if you could get the lockbox key that or code that I could sneak into these buildings late when there was nobody there, I could put a sleeping bag down, crash uh, in this like luxury apartment and then wake up and be gone <laughs> before they find out. And it worked wonderfully until one morning I woke up and there was a dude like staring at me, some like broker in like a three piece suit, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, you know, make a beeline through the through the window. But I started in the rave scene, the electronic music scene, the EDM scene at that time, which was booming. And the interesting part about that was that I started going to these raves because I couldn't sleep in the abandoned buildings anymore. So I thought, fuck, man, I got to find somewhere to sleep. And these parties would start at 2 a.m., which was great. I love that droning of that music, the techno music. And I would just go behind the speakers, find a spot and crash for a few hours. That's all I would need. And then I would wake up, you know, be the morning, the party still be going, you know, hang out a little bit and then, you know, head out. And that would be, you know, I'd start my day like that. You're the only guy I've ever met, by the way, that sneaks into a rave to catch a nap. Yeah. Like, like what gave you the balls at 15 or, or what was what's in your DNA where at 15 you were like, yeah, I think I'll just try to go live in some abandoned condos, maybe crash out behind the speakers at a rave. Like, I've got to get out there on my own to find my path, opposed to living a comfy life with your parents and trying to become a doctor or lawyer. Like, what was it in your mind? Like, what was wired well or wired wrong that gave you the idea that, like, that was the plan? 
Yeah, I write about this in my book, and I think it's it's a really important distinction. And it's I think part of having a certain level of grit and stick to itiveness, but also the quality of being relentless. Since I was a kid, I was always picked on. When we came to this country, it was during the Iran-Contra scandal. Iran was not in favor. People did not like Iranian people. We got called all kinds of names. I had my ass handed to me every day at school. Every day it was like going for a beating. And it wasn't like now. Like now my my kid goes, Johnny said the S word. And I'm like, what happened? All the teachers are there and we're having a parent-teacher meeting and all this. Back then you would just go and you'd get the shit kicked out of you. Yeah. You'd tell the teacher, right? i tell the teacher, I'd be like, I got the shit kicked out of me. Well, what'd you do? Yeah. Remember? So it was totally. like that. And what year did your family come here? We came here in 79. 79. Okay. Cause so you're a couple years older than me. I was born in 79, but I distinctly remember my, like between third and fourth grade, John Muir high school in Glendale. It was literally overnight. Half of the population in Glendale was Armenian, Iranian and uh, Lebanese. Right. And, uh, and you know, part of it was the, the Shah and the ongoing, the ongoing drama there and people finally being able to immigrate and then everything that was going on in Lebanon and the bombing of the, the Marine barracks. And I just remember in the 80s, this would have been the late 80s, almost overnight, it was like 50% Middle Eastern in Glendale. And I was like, oh, this is weird. I got, I'm going to fourth grade with a bunch of dudes that have like beards and mustaches and body hair. And I'm like, this is, this is unique. Um, but yeah, it was the same thing. Like you just didn't know, you didn't know the culture of these people. And so like there was constantly fights on the playground for reasons that completely escaped me now as an adult. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, look in Iran until I was like five years old, I was king of the heap. You know, I was, it was great. I was, we would run out into Iran, by the way, one of the safest countries in the world, as far as crime goes, super safe. Like we would just leave and come back at a, as, as, you know, as a five-year-old, like your kid's age, right. we would just bail and come back when we felt like it. Right. And it was fine. There was no, like, it, it, there, it, it's not like now where you got like weird pedos running around the street and like, right. I won't let my kid two feet in front of me without like me, you know, looking out for him or having an adult there. But yeah. I've got like air tags in my kid's shoes and everything. And I'm oh, like, you're not yeah. getting my kid. Nope. Nope. I'm <laughs> microchip mine in a second just kidding but i probably would so anyway you know i i started um you know throwing these raves and i was like fuck man i'm not making any money so i started looking at the raves and i was like well who is making money from the raves it's got to be the promoters. So I started looking at other promoters. The promoters were all broke ass motherfuckers. Every time they'd be there going like, oh, we didn't make any money. We lost money. They always lose money on this. So I was like, I got it. It's got to be the DJs. And then I'd look and the DJs would always be standing outside the raves with their hands out. Like nobody paid us, you know, a classic story of the, the DJ never gets paid. So I thought, okay, it's got to be the property owners. Nope, most of those were break-ins. Most of the people who did raves in the 90s, those warehouses, the people who owned the warehouses probably never knew that there was a rave thrown there. Or if they did, they only found out after. So who do you think was making the money? There was somebody making the money, keeping those raves going. I only know because I read your book. Okay. It was the drug dealers. It was the drug dealers. Okay, yeah. So I looked at that and I thought, hey, man, you know what? That's a brilliant idea. And then I thought, fuck, I'm a neurotic Iranian Jewish kid. I'm going to be really fucking bad at crime. <laughs> like I knew that early on. I was like, crime is not for me. Like hypothetically, it sounds really good. I'd love to be Scarface with the big gun and the powder on my face. and the. But it's just that's not happening for me. I, I had a, a moment reality check 
advance intervention with myself. <laughs> yeah. And, and no offense, you're not exactly, you know, 6'4", 250 pounds. So you're not like a real intimidating criminal to go sell drugs at the rave. Although I don't know, maybe the rave, maybe the rave drug dealers are, 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 are much tinier than I'm used to in the, in the nineties. We'll just leave it at that on who I bought drugs from, but, um, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly bought drugs from in the nineties. So, so I, I remember when the EDC, which is now in Vegas was at the, uh, Coliseum sure. and it was like, everybody was going there in the nineties and same thing. You'd have these break-ins at a warehouse in Culver city or Palmdale or whatever. And by the time you got there, half the time it was broke up by the cops. So these, right. these are like the original raves, glow sticks, you know, sure. fucking candy color necklaces and shit. This is, this is like straight out of the movies is the stuff that you were involved in. Yeah. So EDC was started by a guy named uh, Pascual Ritea, who was my neighbor, a little bit younger than me. And he started off going to my raves and we were buddies. He'd be at my house all the time. And Amazing. then I looked at the rave scene and I was like, fuck this, man. No one's really making money except the drug dealers. I got to figure out a way to get into that. And then Pasquale continued doing it and he created his big uh, electric daisy carnival empire and married a Playboy bunny and living a, a fabulous life. And I went on well before his huge success to create Herbal Ecstasy. So I figured out a way to create a legal version of MDMA, Molly, ecstasy, methyl dioxymethamphetamine. The, the one that I created was an all natural version using an herb at the time that was legal. It was no longer legal. And what had happened was that I walked into the club and this is a great example of being at the right place at the right time. The supply of MDMA, of real ecstasy, had been shrunk dramatically. There was no real drugs circulating through a rave scene that was booming and the demand was huge but this stuff was difficult to synthesize people didn't really know how to synthesize it at that time so there was a lot of speed and junk being passed along as real ecstasy but real ecstasy was really hard to get and they cut the supply which was coming from england and from europe mostly holland and they just couldn't get it in so the drug dealers were desperate and i was there and I walked into one club when the supply ran out. The supply would usually run out around 11 o'clock and you'd see all these grumpy ass people walking around looking for anything to buy. And I walked up to a drug dealer and, you know, like reached down in my pants, grabbed my balls, made sure they were still there. And I was like, dude, sell this. And he said, fuck you, go away. What is that shit? And finally I was like, you know, I talked him into it. I was like, look, you got nothing to lose. I'll front you all the product. If you don't sell it, I'll take it back, throw it away, whatever. He did. Within an hour, everybody in the club was jumping up and down, pointing at me, pointing at him. He came back. He said, how much more can you get, bro? How quickly can you get it? And so... So wait, let, let's, that's a pretty big, uh, grand Canyon chasm to, 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 to jump over between sleeping behind the speakers and now having a legal version of ecstasy, which you called herbal ecstasy, different spelling, probably for trademark reasons. Um, but like how does a 15 year old high school dropout design a legal ecstasy supplement alternative? You know, I, in my mind, it's like, Oh, this took, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and a bunch of scientists and like a bunch of resources you didn't have. So how did, how did this even come to be that you knew how to synthesize this herbal ecstasy or did you just buy it off the shelf from somebody else? Or what was the, what was the deal? Not at all. So at that time, 
I was still sleeping behind the speakers. I had managed to get myself a girlfriend who was nutty as the day is long. Absolute nutso. <laughs> you know, I don't know if she'll ever hear this, but she was a nutcase. Every one of those and had one of those. Every I, one of us had one of those in our, you know, teens, 20s. Yeah. Oh, my God. This girl was on every drug in the world. And I didn't do any drugs until well into my 30s, allegedly. So, you know, we were basically making it in her kitchen at the time she was staying with her her dad and i occasionally stayed with her and i would literally cook it up in you know between her kitchen and her garage and what happened was that i would not take no for an answer so i picked up the yellow pages uh, at the time we had these books with people's phone numbers in it <laughs> crazy times at crazy times and i realized that authors people that write books are really just a phone call away and they're lonely ass motherfuckers. And I think that's still the case to this day. Just because you write a book, you know, somebody writes a book, you read that book, you feel like you know that person. You feel like that person is famous. You feel like that person has a whole world. But most people who spend their time glued to their fucking seat writing books, really their lives are not that full of people, right? Most academics are not like that. So I started looking up people who've written books. I looked up the great naturopath, Andrew Weil, who's a, a famous uh, herbal doctor. He wrote all the books for the textbooks in the 1960s and 70s, I think 60s and 70s, for on psychedelic drugs and all this stuff. And he was an expert on herbal medicine. And I picked up the phone, I called the yellow pages, and I said, so hey, good. I'm, I'm inventing a new drug. I need your help. And he talked, he talked to me for a bunch of hours and he said, call me anytime. And he gave me resources. He said, call this guy, call that guy, use my name. So I started doing that. And I went from one guy to another guy. And one guy's like, Hey, I got a bag full of herbs here. Might do what you wanted to do. Come and grab it. And so I came and grabbed it. And I went to another guy and I said, look, I went to a guy in Chinatown. I said, look, I have no money, but I'm going to be a millionaire. And if you make the stuff for me, I'll pay you. I just can't pay you right now. And people did it. People, people believe me. They're like, He's a kid, but you know, they, they look. If he doesn't, if he doesn't do it, we won't sell it to him anymore. I just think of this like Chinese guy in an herbal shop downtown, fifteen-year-old version of you. Like you look pretty young right now. So at fifteen, you must have looked really young. Just walks in with a bag of herbs. You're like, I'm gonna need your expertise, your pill press, and I'm gonna pay you on consignment when I finally sell this stuff legally to a bunch of ravers. I mean, I can only imagine this guy looking at you like, who the fuck is this nutcase? Like, he's either going to get me sent to jail or he's going to make me $100 million. So I learned early on. I had a mentor, a guy named Ed, and he was one of uh, the leaders in a part, a very important part of the civil rights movement, actually. Is this the guy you talk about in the book that you met at the library? That's right. Yeah, a super fascinating character. I looked him up on Wikipedia and looked up his Supreme Court case. This is the guy that just like took his own case all the way to the Supreme Court, like fascinating human being in the civil rights movement. Yeah, amazing guy. He was on Oprah, I think like four or five times. And this was a guy who was a black man in America and walking around places like San Diego, La Jolla, well-known areas, and he would get stopped by the police and the police would ask him for ID and he would give him the middle finger. This was before any of the social stuff that we have these days. And he would say, fuck you, take me to jail. And they would take him to jail. He sued them in pro per, which means on his own without an attorney, all the way to the Supreme Court and he won. And this guy was like, uh, he, was, he, he wasn't like he was an urban shaman. And he had had some transformative experiences. He, I think he had done some LSD in the 1960s. He had studied 
all types of different philosophies. So he was really a, a, a deep motherfucker. He was a realized human being. And he would, his, he, one of these guys whose presence would really impact you just being in the room with him. Like I, I watched those like crazy, I love watching those cult movies. You know, you ever watch the uh, Osho one? What's it called? Uh, Wild Wild Country. It was a big one about this. No, I'm going to check this out. Oh yeah. It's a great, great documentary about this guy named uh, Osho uh, who, who started this like cult in the 19, it was in the 1980s and he was, you know, a, a brilliant uh, uh, philosopher. But, you know, he gathered people. That whole thing went sideways. But, you know, it's these people that have this cult of personality, this, this kind of charisma. And he was one of those guys. And why I'm going there is because he taught me the power of influence. If you're able to influence somebody, money is just one way to influence people. It's the easiest way. If I want something that you have, I give you money, you give me that thing, great. But he would point point around wherever we were at meeting he says everything around you has been sold transferred from one person to the next and not always with money in hand so there's lots of different ways to be able to influence people so i learned at a very early age through his mentorship the art of influence and now you know like the stuff i do on amazon is all based on caldini's work and the stuff i learned from ed this guy professor caldini wrote this book called influence mm -hmm. great book great book <laughs> and a follow-up book called persuasion where he talks about these five elements social proof reciprocity sincerity likability scarcity all these elements that create this architecture of influence where you can get people to do things without necessarily having to give them money. So at that time, I was already beginning to master the art of influence and I was able to talk to people. I was able to be relatable. When you're that young, people kind of want you to succeed. Yeah. Right? You ever see those kids who come up to you with the candy? Hey buddy, you want to buy a candy oh, bar? Yeah. You know, right? I'm like, dude, dude, I'm a sucker for all that stuff. I sold so much shit <laughs> when I was a boy scout or, you know, for school fundraisers that it doesn't matter what the product is. If you catch me in a parking lot and you put a kid in front of me with a uniform, I will buy anything. It's like, cause you just want them to succeed. Like you want the little guy to win. That's right. That's right. So, so there is a conspiracy out there for your success when you are that young. And that naive. So you have that going for you. There's an advantage to naivety in that way. The second element is that I didn't know I could fail. All the signs really were pointing to me becoming a terrible failure, dying in some kind of like drug transaction, something or other. But that wasn't my reality. The reality I had created for myself, like what Steve Jobs called his reality distortion field, or what I should say, Walter Isaacson, when he wrote the book about Steve Jobs, talked about his reality distortion field. When people walked around Steve Jobs, they were like, fuck, he'd be like, I want a phone with no buttons. They'd be like, great, we can have that for you in like two, three years. He'd be like, Wednesday, five o'clock. And all of a sudden, they'd all be agreeing to having that fucking phone with no buttons, even though the technology wasn't, wasn't there yet. It's that real reality distortion field. And I talk about that in my book, how you can create your own reality distortion field and, and use it to your advantage. But I had that. I, I was going to succeed. There was no question. It was like, you know, there was a nail and a piece of wood and I was going to get that through. It didn't matter if I was going to do it with a hammer, with a rock, with a sledgehammer, use my fist, you know, use a drill. It didn't matter. I was going to get that thing through. And, and I did. And I succeeded. So, so how long bef between you're having a personal conversation with yourself that I'd like to be a legal drug dealer and like the first batch of stuff is ready for a bunch of ravers to try? Was it years, months, days? Days. days. Jesus. Yeah. 
I made that, yeah, I made the decision. I picked up the phone. I went to the library uh, and it was a crazy time. I actually didn't have enough money to make the phone calls I needed to make because back then we had these things called pay phones and you had to drop quarters in. So I had a guy I knew who was a hacker type who loaned me one of these crazy boxes and you would put the box up to the phone and it would make some sounds and then you'd be able to make a phone call. It was a total hack thing. I'm sure it was very illegal at the time. <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure like what was, what was... <laughs> I'm not sure what was involved in all that, but that's how we would make the phone calls in those days. And I just just got on the phone and I wouldn't take no. And sure, people would hang up on me and sure, people would be like, you're out of your fucking mind. And there was many times where I would just show up at people's offices, people's place of business, and I would just sit there until they saw me and told me to get the fuck out and never come in again. And there was a lot of that, but that didn't that didn't affect me. That yeah, you got nothing to lose at that point, right? Got nothing to lose, you know, and it's actually funny, you know, I oftentimes tell the story and, you know, one of the the guys, I've got a, a young guy who I mentored, he just raised five million bucks for a startup and he's doing phenomenally well. One of the young people that I mentor now, because I mentor a lot of people, I always tell him the story and he's blown away by it. You know, when I made my first, uh, something like hundred thousand bucks, something like that, I had a backpack and I went out and I bought a pair of shoes. I never wore it, but I got a new pair of shoes because I was like, you know what? If everything fucking goes to shit, if I lose everything, because none of this feels real right now, I was sleeping in an abandoned building. Now I've got an apartment and, you know, I got a hundred grand in cash. Like I'll at least have a, a, a new pair of shoes that I can wear anywhere I want. So I've got that. And until recently, I still had that backpack, which held all of my belongings and a pair of new shoes. And I had that exact same backpack until, you know, a few years ago, but it was a reminder to me, you know, when I was making millions of dollars, when, you know, one morning, so I wake up and so let, let me tell the story this way. So it went from that one drug dealer to 10 to a thousand to 10,000 to all over the world. And what's amazing is the drug you're selling is 100% legal. It's made from all legal herbs. Like you, you can, you know, maybe you can get busted for not paying your taxes or not having the right licensing or something, but it's not like you're going to get busted with 10,000 of these pills and go to federal prison for the rest of your life. You're right. Amazing. Yeah. It was all natural, all legal. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, at the end of the day, the, the government was so frustrated with me. I mean, the president took actions against me at the time. He, um, put a head of the FDA at the time. It was a guy named David Kessler who went on national TV. He refused to be on TV with me in the same room. So we had to do a satellite broadcast on Sam Donaldson's show Nightline. Great reporter, Sam Donaldson, um, who uh, uh, ironically also uh, covered uh, Iran-Contra. But Sam Donaldson came to my office and I did the interview with Sam and David Kessler did the interview by satellite in some other office. And... He was really, I mean, you know, the directive was to take me down, but the government didn't understand because they were like, well, if it's fucking drugs, we'll get the DEA on them. And they called the DEA and the DEA investigated and they're like, it's not drugs. They're like, well, then we'll get the FDA on him. And the FDA was like, yeah, it's a supplement sort of. It's not a vitamin. It's not not a vitamin. They didn't know what to do. I didn't fit right. into any mold. We had created an entire new niche. Not only that, 
we were selling in the most unconventional of places. Sure, we got into GNC and 7-Eleven and I was in 30,000 doors by the time I was 18 years old. 30,000 stores were selling our stuff, not including the franchises that each had five, 10,000 stores, those kinds of things. But we were also selling through unconventional places. We were selling through adult stores. Larry Flint called me to his office many times. He was selling us at his Hustler stores. We were sold in um, all the places that sold Playboy and Hustler and Penthouse, all those places. Not only that, we were sold in record stores. When the CD business started to go down because of Napster and iPods coming out and all that stuff, these stores were dying. Tower Records was dying. And we kept them afloat. People were coming into the store to buy Herbal Ecstasy. We were keeping the New Age bookstores afloat. They were all selling Herbal Ecstasy. Everybody was fucking selling Herbal Ecstasy. All the stores on Melrose, Haight-Ashbury. You know, we had, I had my own stores that we franchised. So you would see these neon ecstasy signs all over the place. We had a flagship store on Melrose that was a store that just sold legal psychedelics and legal drugs and books on psychedelics and we had lectures and it was it was it was an insane time and then one- and, and how long is this by the way from like when you first get your first drug dealer at that rave to be like all right you're out of illegal drugs try this legal stuff um how long does it take to grow from that first hundred thousand to like holy shit man we're franchised in in larry flint's place you know like yeah. like how long did it take you to ramp that up and what does that even look like to fulfill that much herbal product because i imagine now you start having supply chain issues and all these big boy business issues which obviously you eventually became a master of that and that's why you're able to do that now on amazon but um i mean what does that journey look like as a 17 year old kid to be like oh now i gotta have like a big boy supply chain and pay taxes and all this crazy shit like what does that even look like i can't even fathom trying to deal with that as a teenager yeah so that was a couple years between, you know, somewhere between 1992 and 1994 and around 94, 95 would probably be the height of it. And then, so this is an interesting story, Scott. So one morning, you know, sometime there in the nineties, I woke up and I stumbled into my office, right? I got into my Ferrari. I drove down there. I had 200 people working for me. I owned Venice beach. Like Everybody in Venice Beach was working for me. I mean, I literally, if I saw your face on the street, you were employed. I, I couldn't hire enough people. There was no workforce. It was pre-internet. We didn't have any of the recruiting sites. And I just needed warm bodies in seats taking orders. We were selling it as quickly as we could make it. Everybody wanted me on their talk show. I did Montel Williams. I did Sam Donaldson. I did all the, all the big talk shows. And so I come into the office and the news breaks that we've, broken a billion dollars in revenue. That's a billion dollars before internet, pre-internet. That's a billion dollars with no cell phone, no social media. There was no Facebook. There was no MySpace, none of that stuff. And two, three years before I was sleeping in the backseat of a Lincoln Continental and the back of an abandoned building, like just trying to figure out, like I was eating tortillas with relish from hot dog stands because I realized that shit was free. And I was, I was dumb enough to be vegan in those days, in the early days. <laughs> so some I, girl must have talked you into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I, I started to panic in my office 
thinking, fuck, man, they're going to ask me how much a billion dollars. I don't know how much a billion is. Is it a thousand million? Is it a hundred million? There's no internet. I was like fucking grabbing encyclopedias. And then somebody had to sit me down and say, look, dumb nut, sit down and be quiet. No one's going to ask you that. They want to know about this drug you've invented and this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, okay, okay. And at this point, I picture this scene like straight out of the movies where it's like, there's cash everywhere. There's checks everywhere. Like that movie blow where they're just stacking cash and people are stealing from you and you don't know how to pay your quarterly taxes because you've never had this much money in your life. Am I kind of along the right lines or did you have this shit figured out or, or were you getting robbed blind by your employees? And what was, what was going on in the company at this time? Like, did you have your shit dialed in and you hired some adults or was this just like the wild west of herbal ecstasy? Yeah. The other thing that you said, yeah, it was that it was the wild west. And all the stuff that you said is true. Everybody was stealing from me. Excuse me. But moreover, I had no fucking clue what I was doing. But what I knew was that we were almost literally printing money. So any mistake that I made could be fixed by just printing more money. So we would make these pills for 25 cents. We had a pretty good supply chain set up. I had multiple manufacturing plants all over the world producing pills around the clock. It cost me 25 cents for a unit. We sold that unit for $20. Most of the business was cash. And we did that all day long. So I, I don't know why you're talking to me and not flying around on some pli- private jet with uh, with your family or or a harem of women, you know, whatever your your flavor is. Um, this is this is just going to have an amazing ending. I can already feel it coming. So yeah, you're printing money, and every time you make a mistake, you just print more money and throw more money at the problem. I'll, t- I'll tell you how crazy it was. So I had a dog, a beautiful uh, albino pit bull. I love those dogs. And this guy was like the only guy I trusted was my dog. You know, that was my only friend in those days because you never knew who was stealing and who wasn't. I would catch people stealing all the time, and I write about it in the book, the crazy ways that people would steal. And I remember one day the dog came into the room and, you know, there was pills everywhere. I had crashed out the night before in my office. Like, you know, it just like the the place smelled like incense and like there's like crap everywhere. And the dog knocks down this pile of papers and I reach down to pick them up and I notice, and there's like a bunch of checks, 10,000, $20,000, whatever, throw them in the pile. There's a check from a Japanese um, vendor for a million bucks that, it's probably over a month old and I just look at it and I throw it back on the pile and like I go back to doing whatever the fuck I was doing before we had laptops because that was just the way things rolled. I mean, people were bringing duffel bags full of cash into the office and it was, it was, a, it was an insane time. It was an insane time. We did Lollapalooza at that time with I think it was the BC Boys and I think uh, Perry Farrell with uh, porno for pyros. I think he was the one who did. I know red hot chili yeah. peppers had some involvement in it, but we did Lollapalooza with them. I remember being in the, in the room with beastie boys and giving everybody herbal ecstasy. And we would do about a million dollars per show. So per location that Lollapalooza was at, we would make a million dollars in cash. And I remember I had to figure out, I was like, fuck man, how like, how are we going to get a million dollars in like twenties and hundreds and and stuff back to Venice? So I sent people out with the cash and I was like, just go buy these fucking RVs. I was like, they were like, well, how much is an RV? I was like, I don't fucking know. Just go buy like three of them and we'll just do like a little train of like rotating RVs. And so of course the people who I had in the RVs picking up the cash and bringing it back managed to keep a little bit for themselves. And 
that happened more often than not, but gradually about a million bucks would come in each rotation. And we did that for the entire Lollapalooza tour. And it was glorious. I mean, everybody hated us, the beer vendors, all the other vendors. I mean, some of the musicians, because there was lines around the bin for people to come buy our pills and everything else wasn't getting the attention that it was getting at that time. We were the big event. People would come to the show to buy the pills and you know, and have the party and do all the stuff that they wanted to do. So it was an absolute insane time and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I was flying by the seat of my pants and yeah, I had a, a, a wacky lawyer that I write about in the book and the guy. That was part of the best story, by the way. Like <laughs> like the Malibu story of you with the supermodel and the lawyer. I mean, this is, he seems like straight out of central casting. Like, I don't know who's going to play him in the movie, but it's going to be pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy, he he lived with a crazy vegan. I was in with a lot of vegan people and the vegan people then were a lot crazier than the vegan people now. And, you know, they, um, he lived with this lady that would go to conservative Jewish houses in the middle of the night and he would steal their chickens because they would apparently sacrifice them allegedly. I don't know, but she would go and, and take the chickens and they couldn't really say anything because they didn't want attention. But <laughs> so good that they were, that they were doing these kinds of like animal sacrifice. I guess allegedly it's something that happens. I don't know. I mean, they, it definitely doesn't happen in, or maybe they just cook them and eat them, but she had to save the chickens. Huh? She had to save the chickens. So she had this house in Santa Monica that was filled with dozens and dozens of chickens. And this dude, I think it was his house. He would sleep in the attic cause he didn't want anything to fucking do with the chickens. But I mean, I remember the girl, you know, the girl was pretty hot. So he was like, and she was like easy about him, like living an open lifestyle. Yeah. I was so, going to say, how good was this girl in bed that he allowed his house to be taken over by chickens like yeah. i'm talking about world-class threesome something must have been going on because i i i freak out when there's shit on our floor much less than my wife came home and was like hey you know i'm mexican we want to have a cow and a pig and about three dozen chickens living in the house i'd be like no fucking way that's right like just no clue uh so anyway this this guy's this guy got conned by an amazing hot vegan who was okay with an open relationship. So they had chickens all over their house. Yeah, he had chickens all over his house. I mean, he was a good looking guy. He got lots of girls anyway, but you know, he always had a, a roaming eye and a roaming hand. But you know, there was something about me in those days where I would look at a guy like that and he would just be so wacky, right? The dude, like, you know, he'd show up in court with like his shirt tucked out and like just he looked he looked far more like Hunter S. Thompson. Then he did like a corporate FDA attorney. And I just looked at him and I was like, you're hired. How much do you want to get paid? I'll double it. You be my in-house attorney. And there, there was a component to that that was basically like, I like to fuck with people at, in those days. And I knew that if they saw that we were not like the usual people, that we were like really fucking weird that a lot of people would back off just for that. They'd be like, these guys are too fucking strange. So we actually did get out of a lot of trouble like that. And he did have moments of competence where he wasn't stoned or chasing ass or, you know, some of that stuff where he did manage to get us out of some level of trouble. So at this point, like who's coming for you, right? Because obviously the FDA wants to find a way to screw over your pills, but it's all made with legal ingredients. Yeah. And I'm sure you've got a bunch of counterfeiters and you've got people trying to rob you blind. So who ended up coming for you that that made the business no longer, you know, sustainable? Or or what happened? How does it how does it all come to an end? Right. So we had a a great run. We branched out. I invented the first herbal cigarette. 
which to this day is the standard for Hollywood studios. When you see stars smoking cigarettes, they're not smoking cigarettes. They're too harsh. They can't continue to do scenes smoking hundreds of cigarettes. They smoked ecstasy cigarettes, which was what I invented. Uh, so we had an, a, a number of products and I ended up selling them off. And the company was kind of pieced out at the end of the day. But what happened was really I realized that you can fight an adversary to some extent, but you can't fight an adversary that has an unlimited budget. And the government has an unlimited budget, and they will always win. It is, it is not possible to win no matter how much money that you have if they want you bad enough. And that's been proven throughout history. Right. And, they, and they wanted us bad. So in the 1980s... And wh why did they want you so bad? Was it because they felt you were skirting the law with what was in the drug or they just wanted they just wanted to have some trophy on their wall from the rave scene because they didn't like the rave scene? Or why, why did you become <clears throat> public enemy number one of the rave scene? That's a great question. So you remember the 1980s the 1980s brought about a company called Pfizer, which was a great company, and they introduced a drug, uh, what I believe is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor called uh, Prozac. Now, what, and I'm terrible, I'm, my science is at the level of the chimpanzee, so if I mess up the science, please forgive me. But they came out with Prozac, and Prozac was their answer to the baby boomers' depression. All these baby boomers who started getting depressed for whatever reason, started taking this Prozac stuff. And it worked great, right? It was a happy pill. Everybody's happy taking Prozac. Well, allegedly, Prozac had one big side effect. Can you guess what it is? Depression? <laughs> oh, erectile dysfunction. Correct. So for both men and females, it led to some form, allegedly, of sexual dysfunction. It was one of the known side effects. Well, Scott, in the 1990s, guess who had the answer with a magic blue pill? I'm not going to say it, but you can... Probably Viagra. That's right. By the same company. Incredible, right? I mean, allegedly, this was something that was thought up, but I don't know. So now, this pill is out, and they have spent billions, with a B, dollars doing clinical trials, doing all kinds of studies, proving safety and efficacy, coming out with this drug. And their master plan is great. It's the first time in history that there has been an FDA-approved drug. It's about to get approved um, to treat erectile dysfunction in males and females alike. And it's it, this is going to be huge. This is going to be massive. No one's ever made a boner pill that the FDA said you could your doctor could prescribe. They've spent billions of dollars. They got advertising lined up, the biggest ad agency in the country. This is going to send their stock soaring. But wait, there's a long-haired Iranian kid, unregulated, one-man show with absolutely no sense of, you know, any of that stuff that they had at that time. You know, no brakes on that train. And he is selling a billion plus dollars of a pill that a lot of people are using for erectile dysfunction and, you know, to have to be sex happy and, and to be happy and all that stuff. They really didn't like that. So allegedly, indirectly, lobbyists went out to the government and pushed really hard. 
Now, at that time, there was a lot of conservatives that were also looking for something to rail against. So yeah, we're the, still coming out of the 80s, dare to say no to drugs. Right. And um, probably doesn't help you that the whole Iran-Contra thing is, right. is only about 10 years in everybody's mind. Yeah. Like, you're the problem child immigrant that's spoiling the youth of America. That's right. It was the perfect storm. So they would call me into these talk shows, and it would obviously be set up. And I would go on. And, you know, I'd usually be blinded as far as what the other side would be saying or doing. And then all of a sudden they bring five angry parents that died from their kids taking real drugs and like, you know, the head of the FDA in New Jersey. And they would all be sitting there like railing at me. And I'd be like, holy, holy shit. Like, what the fuck? Like, I wasn't expecting this. And then quickly I learned that, wait a second, what people are hearing isn't that my product is dangerous. What they're hearing is that this shit might actually work. Right, right. And we made millions. I tell the story of when I went on Montel Williams and Montel invited me. I remember back when Montel, before uh, Cannabis Montel, we had more conservative military Montel. Yeah, yeah, ex-Navy SEAL Montel. Ex-Navy SEAL. Was he a Navy SEAL? No, I think he actually got busted for pretending he was a Navy SEAL, uh, like some stolen Valor stuff. If I I remember correctly, Montel Williams got his ass beat at like a military bar for claiming he was something he wasn't. Oh. Um, And then, you know, of course, the whole story got revised. And luckily, this is pre-internet, so a lot of people couldn't call him out on that. But if I, maybe I'm making this up on my head. Chris can fact check me on this. But if I remember correctly, uh, Montel was one of those like, stolen valor guys that kind of inflated his military record uh to look better in certain talk show situations so oh, wow um yeah but anyway so you're on montel so i'm on montel and it turns out that it's uh it's a ambush and i didn't realize this but somebody had tipped me off ahead of time and i went on the show anyway i flew out to new york but what he didn't know is that i had t-shirts made up back in those days pre-internet with our 800 number all across them and i gave it to several people in strategic places where the cameras were in the audience. And we didn't pay them, we gave them pills. We gave everybody in the line pills. We give people in the studio audience pills. So when I get on stage and they start the ambush and this video is online, you can watch it on YouTube, I take my sweater off, there's my 800 number. And they're railing, this stuff will kill you, this is the worst thing ever. And I'm saying, look, our product has never hurt anybody. These people, their, their kids were taking real drugs and real drugs can kill you. Our stuff has never killed you. But then there's that doubt that they're casting by showing you know, these parents and you know, the, the scene is something different than what's being said. But at the same time, it's that message. People are thinking, this shit might really work. I can go to the store and buy drugs. This is fucking awesome. And we made a million dollars every airing. And Montel, you see him on the show. You can watch it on YouTube. He's like, you said that we have to read your 800 number. We're not going to read your 800. People pay a lot of money on the show. And he was, he was screaming at me on the show, not realizing that all the time, the 800 number was there <laughs> on my shirt. And every time the camera turned. it's <laughs> so good. Every time the camera turned to the audience, there'd be somebody there wearing an ecstasy shirt with the 800 number. And they didn't realize this until years after in reruns where they finally blurred out the 800 number. But we made a lot of money on that show. And we made a lot of money on all these shows. And it was just this process of, you know, it was still that attitude of being that 15-year-old kid from Iran who got his ass kicked every day. 
thinking, you know what? I'm not going to fucking let these bastards grind me down. There is nothing that they can do that's going to make me not succeed to the level that I want to, not to the, and I fought them to the very fucking end. You know, it's interesting because we talked about this right before the show started. I I wanted to ask and get your take on this is, you know, having grown up in Glendale, I have a lot of Iranian friends, a lot of Lebanese friends, a lot of Armenian friends. Um, There is definitely that cross section of like, oh, dad told me I was going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. But there is also this cross section, like maybe an overwhelming percentage of like first generation Middle Eastern immigrants that like they just have this energy or this fight in them or this desire to be entrepreneurial, fully commissioned, take the risk, try to start their own thing. What is that? Do you think about that like immigrant flavor or mentality where it's like, there's so many people like you that have the story of like, I took my shot and I won, and I won, or I took my shot and I lost, or I was just willing to take the shot where I feel like, you know, maybe if we're stereotyping that same type of entrepreneurial spirit, isn't naturally occurring in a lot of other, maybe like third, fourth, fifth, 10th generation Americans. Like what is it about you and people like you that are willing to kind of take that risk? Is it because you got your ass beat in third grade or what? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take a couple shots at that. So again, remember, I have the scientific sophistication of a chimpanzee. So please, if I mess up science, don't uh, quote me on it. Yeah, and I just made but, sweeping generalizations and, and probably prejudicial <laughs> statements. So I'm sorry to whoever I just offended. But I mean, you can just feel it when you talk yeah. to certain cultures. I, I, there's something called epigenetics, which is, you know, again, sophistication of a chimpanzee. But from what I understand of it, it is the representation that our genetics are, and, and, you know, we're not talking about like long-term evolutionary genetics of like thousands or millions of years ago. We're talking about genetics of just one generation or two generation is somehow carried in our DNA. If there was some type of trauma in one generation ago, there is some part of us that may or may not hold that, um, hold some fragment of that memory. Right. And I really believe that there's something, if you come from these other parts of the world, from the Middle East, from Asia, from these places where, you know, two generations ago, my, my family, you know, was basically living in, in pretty, you know, uh, desperate situations that that does carry over to the offspring, even though, you know, I never wanted for much in my life. I was always fed, you know, up until the time I left home, you know, I had, I had clothes. My parents were working class, you know, we were poor, but we had enough. We got by. I still think that there is some trauma from the past that somehow there's a memory that carries over. I don't know how, but there's something about that. Uh, also, I remember, you know, coming from Iran, it's not like here, like, we ate all the food that was in our fucking plate. We just did. Nothing was handed to us from the standpoint of entitlement. I, I never remember being in Iran, having my parents feel like we're entitled to anything. We worked for everything that we had. My dad worked and struggled. You know, we came to this country with basically nothing but the clothes on our back. He worked at a shitty pizza restaurant, a shitty dry cleaners for, for 30 years. And, and they hustled and they struggled. And as a kid, I saw that. But we moved to an affluent part of the United States in uh, affluent part of California called the Pacific Palisades that wasn't affluent at the time, but it was up and coming. We managed to get a house there. And I just remember, you know, my parents 
you know, calling the broker and, you know, getting all the money they had together to buy this house. And you know, they got lucky and the broker called them and said, look, guys, you can have this house, but there's a problem. And that's why they're going to sell it to you this cheap. And I remember my dad saying, well, what is it? This is great. We can afford this house. What, like, how, how, like what's the deal? And they said, well, there's some people living there. I said, okay, well, no problem. We'll wait for them to move out. He's like, you don't understand. They're, they're camped in the backyard and they're tents and they're fucking Hare Krishnas. And the previous owner has been <laughs> trying to get them out for like 10 years and he can't get them out. And my dad said, we'll take it. And they put all their money and they bought this fucking house. And now there's the Hare Krishnas that they've been trying to get out and they just couldn't get them out, right? Like, I don't know, there was some story and one of the guys had a cousin who was a cop or something. So they couldn't arrest, they just would, they just couldn't get these fucking people. Professional squatters. Professional squatters. And like they would leave and other ones would show up. Now this is one of the, you know, larger lots in the area. It was three lots. It was huge. House was torn, you know, terrible, tear downable. And I just remember my, my parents, I was like, what the fuck are they going to do? I was a kid. I was like four or five years old. And my mom just kept bringing them food and tea. And my dad kept bringing them food and tea. And they were just being kind to them. And we moved into this house in total disrepair. And these people were living in the yard. And I remember just my parents being kind. And I remember one day after, you know, a couple months or several weeks, one of the guys came and said, hey, you guys are so, no one's ever been kind to us before. You guys aren't from here. And my dad said, no, we are not. We are from Iran. And... (laughs) You know, your accent is spot on, by spot the way, on, when, you, when you turn it on. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I could do the whole interview like that if you want. So, <laughs> so, you know, so they just started bringing them food and the guy said, look, you guys are, you guys are too kind to us. We're, we're going to leave. And they left. They killed them with kindness. They left and we moved to this, to this house. And so now we're here. The neighborhood's up and coming. Wealthy people are moving in after, after a few years and real estate prices are shooting up, right? Ronald Reagan, trickle down economics, all that, all that shit. And I'm living there, you know, with like friends that are like, you know, they, they've got their choice of like eating out and doing this. I didn't eat at a restaurant until I was like 14 years old. I didn't know. I was like, that's a fucking great concept. Like they'll bring you what, wait, hold on. Explain this to me again. <laughs> you sit down and they bring you anything you want. And like that, that's, that's how, that's how it was. But I watched that stuff and nobody had ever given me anything. Nobody had ever been like, you know, here, buddy, you're entitled to this trust fund and here's, you know, free food. We didn't get shit. We fucking worked for everything we had. So seeing that built this grit and it built this, you know, through adversity, I think you can build a character in a way that's a very difficult to build any other way. Like, I'm not sure my kid's a little rich kid. He goes to a private school and lives in an affluent area and he's a great fucking kid and I love him and he's way smarter than I am and I'm sure he's going to do great things, but I don't think he's going to have that. So he's got to figure out another way to have a transformative life experience that's going to build that grit in a different way for him. Dude, this is so funny because you and I have kids about the same age. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine who has three kids also around the same age as ours. And and he always jokes. He's a great guy. I got to have him on the podcast because I, I think he'll speak openly about this. He had a really rough childhood, all kinds of abuse, physical, emotional, whatnot. Um, had a really, really rough decade in his 20s and now has come out of it. And he's a pastor and he's a great guy. And he's just a wonderful human being. But he always makes the joke. He's like, I think I just love my kids too much. Like, I'm just not making it hard enough for them because he's like, 
like, you know, I don't wish anybody to have the life that I had growing up, but there's a certain amount of grit and resilience. And there's just, there's a certain amount of like entrepreneur spirit that he has where he's just not going to lose. And he's like, my kids aren't going to have that. They're spoiled to your point. You know, they go to private school, they're rich kids. They're like, they're never going to want for anything. He's like, and so his ongoing joke is like, yeah, damn it. I just love my kids too much. He's like, I think I need to start punching little Jimmy once in a while just to, just to give him some grit. So, um, yeah, that's interesting because I, I feel the same concerns about my kids, you know, growing up in a gated community not having like a little bit of like a rough and tumble childhood. Like, am I, am I doing them a disservice by treating them better than we were as kids? I, I don't know. Cause I'm the same thing. I didn't, I didn't want for anything. I, I did get to go to McDonald's once in a while as a kid growing up. So I wasn't as, as quite rough off as you were, but there, there is something about that. Like, are we, are we negating our kids ability to have some of that grit and determination because their life's too easy? Yeah. I think, look, you, you can't give them a huge, big fat trust fund and just assume that they're going to be okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you got to build discipline. You got to build character. And you do that through things like martial arts. I know you practice jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. I do as well. Things like that build character, right? On the mat, there's no bullshit. You can't fucking fake your jujitsu skills. Once you get on the mat, all truth. Bruce Lee used to say truth is found in combat. That's why Bruce Lee didn't like belts. He didn't believe in belts. I trained under a guy for a number of years called uh, Dan Inosanto, and he was one of Bruce Lee's prodigies. And I went to his academy and, you know, I studied there very at a very low level, I should mention. And, you know, Bruce Lee always said that truth is found in combat. And, and Inosanto always teaches that, look, you know, the belt covers just, you know, one inch around your waist and the rest of rest of that is your skill. And I think that's something that's that's really important to be found in martial arts is the fact that there there really is a truth to combat. And I think that children in general, particularly boys, have really have become soft by the culture that has been presented to them these days. And I think it's fucking great to get into some fights, right? If somebody kicks you in the nuts, fucking, you know, go, go, <laughs> go at it, right? I tell my kid, you know, like, look, don't, don't ever assault anybody. But if you are assaulted, you have every right to defend yourself. Totally. Right? Same right? conversation with my son. And I don't actually, I don't know if you've made this mistake yet. I have a, a son and a daughter and I told my son, I'm like, Hey, you don't ever get to punch anybody proactively. You don't ever get to start a fight. But if somebody messes with your little sister, you have to step in and defend her. So now he's just itching for somebody to hit his sister. He's like, Hey, you want to start some shit with my sister? So I can fuck you up. Like I can see the look <laughs> in his eyes. He's kind of processing. He's like, all right, who's going to mess with my sister so I can start a fight. And I'm like, Oh God, I totally, totally misread the situation, buddy. Like I did not explain that well to your five-year-old brain. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that's funny. Sorry, I just I had to tell that story because it was so funny. He's just waiting for somebody to mess with his sister. You uh, gave him a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. So how long does the herbal ecstasy, you know, run? How, how long does that last? And 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 what's kind of left over for you? You know, you mentioned that you parsed off some of the company. Like, did you keep the Ferrari or did you keep one of the supermodels or anything like that? Or like, um, how long does this journey kind of last before it's time for phase two of your life? Yeah, so, well, now I'm, I'm happily married with a beautiful wife and a beautiful son and my life is, is spectacular. You know, I, I want for nothing and, you know, my life is good. And I did, you know, get to keep a considerable amount of my wealth. I mean, certainly not the billions of, you know, dollars that were created in those days or the, you know, hundreds of millions or however much it was. But, you know, I um, exited herbal ecstasy, I should say, like in the late 90s. And I went on to inventing all the forerunners to what you see now in vapes. 
So vaporization technology was in its infancy. I patented a lot of the technology for vaporization. That company went public in 2007. I exited just a little before that. And I had a really nice exit with that. And um, it's funny, you know, people are calling me all the time going, dude, I'm vaping. I'm like, I have nothing to do with that business, nor do I endorse <laughs> it for you, sir. It is bad for your health. Please do not do it. Um, but, you know, so I exited that. And then, you know, someday after that, I was like, you know what? I want to do another supplement. I got really big into this biohacking stuff. And I met Dave Asprey and a bunch of these other guys along the way. And I got really into biohacking. And even before that, I decided, hey, I'm going to, you know, make this limitless pill. And funny enough, you know, Bradley Cooper was at my house and we were talking about nootropics and all this stuff a while back. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. And, you know, he, of course, went on to make that awesome film, Limitless, which is such a cool film, such a fucking cool film. Right. We all want that pill. And I was like, I want to make that fucking pill independent of that. And um, he just happened to be at my party. We were not close friends at that time. And so I, I decided to make this pill. And then I was thinking to myself, fuck, man, like I got to figure out a way to sell this. Because one of the things that I learned over the course of the history of selling things, and I teach this now to my students in my Amazon course, my Amazon mastery course, where I teach people how to make money on Amazon, is that you have to always think distribution first. Distribution is the single most important component of selling anything. How many shitty movies have you seen in a movie theater? Probably a few. Absolutely. Yeah, where you're sitting going, holy fuck, I want my two hours back. <laughs> right, right, right. Give me my fuck. How did this fucking thing get made? Distribution. Equally, imagine how many amazing movies there are. Great directors, fantastic writers. It's like Godfather 5. It's like the fucking greatest films ever. That never got made or never, we've never seen. They might be out there somewhere floating around in the ether. Distribution. So the number one mistake that most people make is that they come up with a better mousetrap and then they think the world is going to beat its way to their door. That was the old way of doing things. That doesn't work anymore. The way things work now and the easier path, the low-hanging fruit, is to find the distribution and to feed it what it needs. And there's certain algorithms that, you know, that we teach or that other people teach that you can find out that teach you how to do that. So I was thinking, well, how am I going to sell this? So I learned through the grapevine, through people that we knew, that Jeff Bezos, guy who had started this bookstore online, Amazon, was going to open up their platform to third-party sellers. That means that guys like me and you could sell anything on there. And it was the Wild West. There was no restrictions to be becoming an Amazon seller. And it was super easy. So you could open an account in 20 minutes. They made it really easy in Bezos style. And you could sell anything. So I thought, okay, I had this smart pill called Accelerol, which I was really excited. We still sell it to this day. It's a fantastic nootropic brain supplement. And I thought, you know, uh, and by the way, I was making it in conjunction with a big pharma company. So it was like totally legit, this <laughs> stuff. It was really fucking You're insane. like, I'm not fucking with the FDA again. Yeah, no, this stuff was was was, <clears throat> was was super, or is super legit. You know, we still sell, we sell two, Accelerol and another one called Focus Plus, which are fantastic. So I was like, all right, let me just put it up on the site. Let me see what happens. Well, maybe we'll sell a couple. I'm not, you know. And what, what year is this? Like, because you this were was, a really early Amazon adopter, right? Yeah, the very, one, one of the very first. So this was probably around 2010, 2009, 
somewhere around there. Yeah, this is just this is just when e-commerce is a thing. Like I remember reading articles back then of like e-commerce isn't fair because you don't even have to pay state taxes. And there was like a big fight right. between Bezos and the different states on whether or not he should have to pay state taxes because right. you know there was no sales tax in Washington or wherever he started. That's right. And um, yeah, I mean this is really early adopter shit. It's it's crazy to think, and and this is to your point of how powerful distribution is. The number one company in the world only about. 10 years into their adulthood, only about 20 years into their existence because their distribution. Amazon, just the most valuable company in the world. And they really don't do shit except for distribution. Well, they do a lot more now, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, we talked about this earlier is that, you know, so what Bezos did, which was fascinating, is that he went to Walmart. You know, Bezos was, people think he's like this, like startup guy, whatever. No, he worked for one of the biggest, you know, like most aggressive uh, venture capital firms in the world. I, I think it was called D.H. Hutton. And Bezos is, he really is one of the smartest guys in the room. When people look at him and go, how did that dude like become the richest guy in the world? It's because he's probably one of the smartest guys in the world for what he does. So he went out there and he said, you know what? We know nothing about warehousing and distribution. Who does? Well, it's Walmart. So he went out there and literally, I mean, you know, allegedly poached one of the top Walmart guys and Walmart knows about distribution. Walmart knows about warehousing and got that guy and gave him an open checkbook and said, create a system where we can ship anything to anywhere and we could do it for these third-party sellers, which means now, Scott, you and me don't have to pack and ship packages in our garage and get them out and worry about a warehouse or whatever. We ship it to Amazon. They'll worry about selling it and they'll sell it on their platform. Fan-fucking-tastic. So I go to sleep. I list the product that night. I woke up in the morning. We had thousands of orders of $120 a month supplement. And I was like, holy shit. That's it. That's the this distribution. Is the future. This, this is, is the it. Future. Dropped everything else and started perfecting selling on Amazon. And I learned over the course of all these years that there's a language that needs to be spoke on Amazon, that there's a language in order to convert. Like anywhere you go, everyone has its own language, right? Real estate brokers, they know their own language. If you've ever bought or sold a house, you know that they, they talk about escrow and you know all these different languages about you know contingency and all this stuff. It's just the language of that business. Well, Selling in e-commerce has a language too. And if you could learn that language, if you can apply those algorithms, you're not trying to invent. Amazon is against invention. I know there's somebody there cringing right now, but Amazon makes being a low price leader, they're customer centric, but they're not for innovation. So if you want to succeed on Amazon, please don't innovate. What they want you to do is to feed the machine that they've built what it wants, maybe for a couple cents cheaper, maybe tell a better story, maybe add some extra value. That's low-hanging fruit, and there's millions being made every day while people sleep because of this platform. And I know you have this really cool um, mastery course that we're going to link to in the uh, in the YouTube and anywhere we put this because you offer it for free. So thank you. And um, how do you how do you decide that like? Hey, I really want to teach this stuff, or I don't know, maybe you 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 hit a spot financially where it's more interesting to teach than receive yourself, you know. But why why teach this stuff, right? Like if you can if you can create a better spatula sales process through Amazon and keep the money for yourself, why not just do it yourself on this product and that product and that product? Like why teach? So we do. So we right now have over three hundred products that we sell. And okay, so you are still doing this real time yourself and making all the money. time. I love Amazon. So we've got about three hundred different products that we sell that are just our own, my company's products that we sell on the Amazon platform, and we have over five thousand products under management from other companies. I've got an agency where 
people bring us products and we get them to the top of the Amazon page. And we discovered that people really love us doing that for them. So we do it. But then I also have this course. And in order to get to the course, you got to do the one hour course. And I, I, you know, we talked about it for anybody who's watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, you know, who's a listener of on the edge. Is that what your, yeah, your podcast so is called? That's okay. our brand. So you guys can use the code on the edge and it's normally 200 bucks, but we'll give you the one hour course absolutely for free. There's absolutely no charge. And the main reason is I want people to know that you can start these streams of recurring revenue. And we talk about this in the course, but I teach this as far as, and I'll, I'll explain what my, my reason is shortly, but I believe in foundational thinking. And I think that especially now in the post COVID world, if you want to succeed, you got to have not just multiple hustles, but you have to have various foundations. So you never have a bad day. And this is how this works. You should have one foundation, one pillar that I believe is cash flow positive real estate. And we do that and I teach that to my students all the time. The second area should be some area of your money should be invested in the markets, whatever it is. You should learn a little bit about the markets and you should invest compound interest, right? Another pillar should be e-commerce. E-commerce is the cheapest real estate that you will ever buy. You can start an e-commerce business on Amazon for little or no money for a few thousand bucks. And really, I mean, you don't, it's free to start these businesses, but you got to put some money into product and merchandising and blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's another pillar because you can grow that for a few thousand bucks. It's the cheapest thing. And you can have it be worth seven, eight figures in a year or two part-time. And the final thing is going to be the, th the pillar that brings you your day-to-day -day cash. It could be your job. It could be whatever you have. If you have a, a trust fund, then that's a pillar for you. But it, like most of us, if you don't, then whatever your work is that you do that gives you the stability, that feeds your family, keeps the kids in diapers, puts gas in the truck, whatever it is, that becomes a pillar. And so when you think like that, you never can really have a bad day. You wake up, oh, the market's dropped 20%. Oh, well, that's okay. You got your real estate, you got your e-commerce business, you have your job. Oh man, you know, uh, real estate's dropped 5% today. Okay, well, no problem. The stock market's here. You got your e-commerce business. So no matter what happens, you, you generally speaking have at least three pillars that cause great stability in your life. And that's what I want to see people build. So I'm at a place in my life where I don't really have to work. I travel with my family most of the time. You know, I collect cars with my kid. You know, we've got a nice collection of Porsches and exotic cars. And so we collect cars and, you know, we hang out. We own a bunch of real estate and we travel most of the time before COVID we did. At least it's gotten harder in the last couple of years, but we're getting back on track. And we travel and when we're traveling, we're making money and we do it, you know, thanks to Amazon. And my goal now in this next phase of my life, one, is to tell my story with this book, tell the story of this wild ride with ecstasy. And that's through Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And there's a podcast. The first chapter of the audiobook is on the podcast. So anybody that wants to listen, we do a podcast called Hack and Grow Rich, which I've got to have you on too, because you're, you're, you'd be a great guest as well. So we do a podcast called Hack and Grow Rich. But my goal really is one of the things that I find the greatest fulfillment in is empowering other people, and I've, I've realized that I'm, I'm pretty good at this, uh, to make money and to create these recurring, life-changing streams of income. And that's where I came up with my Amazon Mastery course. 
And so far we've launched over 55 different companies. We've got 55 more that are going to launch in the next couple months. And they've all created great businesses on Amazon. Not everybody is going to make earth shattering money. Some of those people still keep their jobs, but it's just another pillar for them to do it. And there's people, you know, every day are creating businesses that earn an extra 10, $15,000 a month. And that's enough for them. But then there's other guys who, you know, really put the time and energy into it. And they've got companies that are earning two, $300,000 a month. And yeah. th these are not unheard of numbers in the, the world of becoming an Amazon seller, but you do need to have a certain level of know-how and understanding of how that works. And that's what we teach. But most importantly, what I want people to realize is that you don't need any money to get started. You really don't need much. And that's why I, I came up with the one hour course where we teach you everything of like how to incorporate for cheap and, and the lowest tax state and how to uh, start the Amazon business and get everything going while you're making that next plan. So this is, this is so brilliant. I, I want to talk a little bit about the economics about it because just from the job that I do in the mortgage business, I'm fascinated on how people make their money and the interplay of all this. But my whole knowledge of the Amazon resale space is we got a call one time from this guy, uh, my old partner, Justin and I, and the guy's like, hey man, um, I just struck gold with this new Amazon reselling business I'm doing. What I'm basically doing is buying shipping, shipping containers full of cheap makeup from China. I'm, you know, rebranding it, taking really great pictures, getting really great reviews. And, you know, I get the makeup from China for a buck and I sell it on, you know, Amazon as a designer brand for 20 bucks. And what happened was the reason he was calling us is because uh, he, he found out through a realtor that we could do bank statement loans based on um, cash flow instead of using tax returns. And he just didn't have two years of corporate taxes. And we're like, well, you know, you're looking to buy this, you know, million and a half dollar condo. Like you've only had the business for about seven months. Like, is this really, I mean, just financially safe for you? And he's like, bro, he's like, I'm making $500,000 a month selling this fucking makeup. And my mind was blown. I was like, why am I working 40 hours a week in the mortgage business? And then it's kind of a fleeting thought. And I hadn't really thought about it until right now we're interviewing you. But um, I, I, I know his results will will not be the norm. Um, but but what does the economics look like? Like are people, you know, I use the spatula example. Are people buying a 57 cent spatula from China and then reselling on Amazon for five bucks? Or what kind of margins are available in the Amazon reseller space? Yeah, so... There's great margins if you pick the right product. So a lot of people are like, oh, is the Amazon game over? Can you still make money on Amazon? Absolutely. I think it's just starting. But the fact is that a lot of these ultra competitive categories, the stuff that all these like mass market courses and stuff teach, those are really oversaturated. So there's so many people in those products that you can't really like see it. And you know, like the guy who's buying the 25 cent spatula and selling it for 20 bucks, that, that's done. But there are other businesses. So there's other niche products where you can take, uh, a, you know, a small piece of a medium-sized pie and still do pretty well, right? The stuff where you're taking a big piece of a big pie, that stuff is gone. But there's lots of great niches. And we teach this in the course that I tell people the riches are in the niches. So the way to think about it, think about the stuff that you're into, and then narrow it down. So maybe you're into fishing. Okay, cool. Well, everyone's buying the cheap rods from China, but what about the um, the little uh, you know hooks that people are buying? Okay, 
well, now there's a certain type of fishing for swordfish that a lot of people are into in a certain part of the country, and they use a platinum, you know, hook. Okay, let's look into that. And then you look into that, and you're like, oh, there's people making $20,000 a month selling those things, and there's only three sellers. And there you go. So you got to break it down into these tiny micro niches and you got to know how to do that. And we teach an algorithm for that. It's in the one hour course. It's super easy. And you got to break it down into those niches and you got to find things that fall into those categories is one way. I mean, another way is if you've got money, you can still go in and bully in these commoditized products, right? right? So you can go sell toilet paper for 50 cents less than the next guy who's willing to sell it and still make a pretty good living. I know people who do that, who make, I know one company, the guy's making $48 million a year in, in gross <laughs> revenue, but you know, his margin's so tight that, you know, they take maybe two, $3 million in profit off $48 million. Right. Um, but that's not what we teach. What we teach is, creating these products that tell a better story in niches that are meaningful. And by doing that, by telling that story better than other people, you don't really even have to have a better product. You just can speak that language of e-commerce that we're talking about. Nice. And, and speaking that e-commerce language, like I know you're a big fan of Bezos, Amazon, like, like you're, you're a fanboy of Amazon kind of like I am, but I just know from, I've, I sell one product on Amazon. I sell my book and the amount of fuckery on just selling the book where they're like, well, yeah, there's the printing fee and the shipping fee. And that comes off the top for, no, no. First, the royalty comes off the top of, you know, 40%. Then there's the printing fee, the shipping fee to this. So if I sell a book on Amazon for, you know, 15, 16 bucks, um, maybe I get $3.40, you know, it costs Amazon $8 to ship and print and they take their 40% off the top. What type of, what, cause obviously Amazon most valuable company in the world. Um, what type of margins are they taking from most of their sellers as far as like, Hey, do they, do they just take a shipping and, and handling fee? Do they take 30% of the revenue off the top? Like what does Amazon usually charge the, the personal fulfiller? Yeah. So interestingly enough, they're probably making little or nothing from you, if not a loss. I think their print on demand business is probably running at a little bit of a loss and they make it up somewhere else. Interesting. It's not profitable to print one book every time somebody wants one of yours and to ship it out. It's just not. Well, the good yeah. news is I've only sold like seven of them. So. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, if, if you were to print them all in China and buy the tens of thousands and sell it through their platform, you'd probably be making 14 of those 16 bucks. Now, interestingly enough, in contrast, if you are with a publisher, you would probably be making a dollar or less. Yeah. So now we're talking about them paying you 300% more right. on your book. Right. And there's no way I could ever find a publisher to print my book, which is all, all joking aside, it's probably sold 10,000 copies, which is awesome. Yeah. But for a real publisher, that's, that's a joke. Um, you know, so, uh, yes, yeah. Amazon is probably doing better for the self-publishing world than any, any other publisher yeah. out there could. Um, but as a seller, so Amazon has, so this is the interesting for any of you guys who want to become Amazon sellers. So I get a lot of people. I had one guy in my course, great guy. He's a retired firefighter, a fantastic human being. And he wanted to, you know, he retired after, I don't know how many years on the, on the force, uh, you know, risked his life many times, super brave guy. And he was like the ch uh, chief, chief firefighter in LA. And he decided, you know, he was going to retire and started an Amazon business. Well, turns out that he was packing and shipping things himself. And I looked at him and I said, buddy, why are you doing this? Why are you like, you know, Amazon does this for you. He goes, yeah, I know, but you know, it might save some money doing it myself. And we looked at the cost of him just sticking a label on something, taking it over to the post office and shipping it 
and what Amazon would charge. And he would save 30 or 40% if Amazon picked and packed it, put it in a box, shipped it because Amazon gets such large volume discounts. They've broken it down to the point of the post office works for them. They get a special discounted rate. UPS might deliver a certain portion of that route of the product. The post office will deliver another portion of the route. And then they have their drivers delivering it to your door. So they've broken it down into so many different steps that they are saving money every step of the way. And like we discussed with Amazon, you might be ordering, hey, that USB cable, but you know, oh, the kid needs diapers, they need detergent, all that stuff goes into a prime box and somebody delivers it to your door. So there's an economy of scale when it comes to using Amazon. So now you're selling something on Amazon, it's gonna be way cheaper for you to use them to fulfill it than to fulfill it yourself. In fact, we sell on Shopify, at eBay, Etsy, Walmart, these other platforms, when permitted, because a lot of these platforms don't like Amazon shipping stuff. We use Amazon to ship to our customers when they're not even buying it on Amazon because it is so cheap and so efficient. These people are masters of efficiency. Bezos is a master of efficiency. The people he has working under him are masters of efficiency. And yeah, if you pick the wrong product, you're not going to have enough profit and enough margin because they take a commission and they take this fee and that fee. But the trick is to finding the right product in those niches that has the right margin. So one of the things we recommend to beginning sellers is try to find a product that's $20 or more. And then one of the, one of the rules of hand is you want to make sure you have at least a four to five time margin from what it sells for. So if you're buying it for, if you're selling it for $20, you should be able to get that thing for $4 or less. And that's a good basic blueprint to go by. Got it. So going back to that USB example, if I'm selling some specialty dongle and, you know, setting up a podcast studio, I can tell you I've spent hundreds of dollars in dongles and weird connections, and this has got to connect to that. Ah, shit, we need another dongle. I mean, between Guitar Center and Amazon, we've probably spent $5,000 in cords and dongles and all kinds of shit. Um, But if I'm thinking this through and I want to sell some specialty dongle for 20 bucks on Amazon... I need to be able to buy it presumably from China for three to four bucks each. And then I just ship pallets or crates of this dongle to Amazon and they take care of everything. I just got to put up the listing and sell it. Yeah. We teach you how to do that. So we teach you how to start what's called an Amazon FBA account. And what does FBA stand for? FBA stands for fulfillment by Amazon. Okay. And they will do that. A nice man at the Amazon warehouse will take all your stuff. They'll inventorize it using robots and technology and drones and AI and whatever it is that they use. And your stuff will go into inventory. When somebody buys it, it'll pick, pack, and ship. And we can be in Santorini on a, on a nice boat with the kids, you know, grilling shrimp. And people are buying our stuff and we don't have to think about shipping it. It's the most glorious thing ever. (laughs) Right, right. And, you know, if you think back your journey from 15 to now, I'm guessing you're in your 40s like me. 46. 46, yeah. So, So you've got now, you know, 30 years of entrepreneurship under your belt. What, what's been some of the biggest surprises? Biggest surprises in the world, biggest it, surprises it, for me. Either way you want to go, but I, I'm just thinking your business, like you've seen a lot, you've processed a whole lot of money and a whole lot of transactions. You've dealt with all kinds of personalities. I mean, your book, we kind of just scratched the surface of it, but what's, what's some of the stuff that's been surprising to you in this entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that's, that's surprising to me is I think, how little most people understand business and how how 
So that that is what I would say is the first thing. I think most people don't put the time. Most people get kind of swept into a business and then somehow they're operating business. They've made a little bit of money and maybe things are running okay, but they're they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants like like I did when I started. And they, they just don't have the time to come up for air to learn how to operate the business the best. And so that oftentimes uh, becomes a, a roadblock for them. The other thing that I learned is you know, the, the importance of distribution. We talked about that, how important it is to find the distribution and feed it what it needs rather than finding the product and, you know, hoping that people buy the product. And more importantly, I think I'm, I'm always pressed by the fact that I think the majority of people mean well and want to do well, but they don't put enough time and energy into education and becoming updated. I talk to so many old balls people who just don't like continually put the energy into updating themselves and what's going on. And the problem is if you don't do that, if you don't take the courses, watch the videos, read the books and stay up to date, how quickly things are changing, especially now in this particular point in history, you will lose. So it is essential that you stay on top of specifically your area and understand that it's that it's always changing. I know now in Amazon that I know, you know, I'm I'm considered one of the experts in the Amazon space. And people come to us, they pay us, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to manage their Amazon businesses and and to do that for them. I still know just the tip of the iceberg as far as what these these guys are doing in these massive companies. And what I know today on Amazon doesn't hold true tomorrow. So I have a whole team. We go to every conference there is. We watch every video. We buy every course. And we incorporate that into our business regularly. And that's why people, you know, look at us and they're like, wow, these guys are the best. Well, the fact is we just stay on top of our shit and we show up. Yeah. Yeah. There's this interesting thing. Like when you start out as an entrepreneur, you really don't know what you don't know. And then you become a victim of your own success where to your point, you're growing, you're growing. You don't have time to come up for air to find out what you don't know. So if you could go back and talk to yourself at, you know, 15, 25, 35 and realizing back then, you know, now knowing what you didn't know, what are some of the books you would recommend? Some of the courses, maybe some of the questions you would ask yourself, like if you could go back in time, 10, 20, 30 years and give yourself advice, be like, man, man, you got to read this book. You've got it. You've got to know this piece of business. What are, what are some of your big takeaways and like your kind of Bibles in business? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my three favorite books of all time, I'd say Richard Koch's 80, 20, he just wrote a new book called unreasonable success. If you haven't read it, read it. It's phenomenal. And it talks about how people like Steve Jobs reached this unreasonable levels of success and had these transformative experiences. It's spectacular. I like David Allen, Getting Things Done. Yeah, it's sort great of book. Canon of Productivity. Spectacular. You can't really do better than that. And I like Caldini's work, which I think is amazing. Uh, as far as reading people, I love the work of Paul Ekman. Emotions Revealed, his classic book on microexpressions and, and reading people, spectacular. And I think, you know, Chris Voss is one of my heroes. He's a friend of mine and a hero who wrote, you know, Chris Voss is the FBI negotiator. He wrote the book Never Split the Difference. And he's also written the introduction to Billion, How I Became King of the Thrillful Cult. Mike, I was going to ask you about that because um, in my coaching program and with any realtors I work with, sure. I've probably sold 
a thousand copies of Chris Voss's book for him because oh. I think Never Split the Difference is like the seminal work in sales and negotiations. I just think it's an amazing book. I've had the opportunity to meet him and be on stage with him once or twice. And um, yeah, tell us that story about getting to know him and having him write the the foreword for your book because that's a that's a big that's a big win. That's a really great character to endorse your kind of your story. Yeah, Chris is a, a good friend. And I've known him for a while now. We're part of a group here in LA called Metal International. And Metal is a networking group. It's men most of the time. And then there is a once a month co-ed that they do. And the concept is just men bringing other men up in business. And our wives love it because it helps men have a time to get together and you know, together as, you know, they call it a heart-centric group for men where we get together and we're all alphas, high achievers, and we make each other better by connecting on a very deep level with business. So we've got a lot of great members like Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, who wrote a blurb for my book, Jay Samet, who wrote Future Proof You, Keith Ferrazzi, who wrote Never Eat Alone. All these guys are, are friends and metal members, and that's how I met Chris. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm uh, very, very interested in having him in the podcast one day because I, I, it's interesting that he's got this totally different life experience as an FBI hostage negotiator. And then he's like, ah, it's just people. It's just negotiation. So very easy to transfer this over to business. And uh, how would knowing some of his concepts early in your life either accelerated your business or changed your business. Like if you could go back, you know, not that we, any of us really have any big regrets. Cause like you said, you got a beautiful wife, kids, great life. What are some things that you might change about the last, you know, 30 years of doing business? Yeah. So we talk about that in the book and Chris, who actually wrote the forward in the book talks about how that applies to the book. But in general, I think, you know, his application of what he calls tactical empathy is, is pretty essential. I love, you know, some of the hacks and tactics that he teaches and he uses, like mirroring is a great one where, you know, you say, I couldn't possibly pay $50,000. And instead of arguing with the person, you, you look at them and you go, you couldn't possibly pay $50,000. So, you know, they feel heard. You know, he actually has an awesome masterclass for anybody who wants to. Have you ever- uh, I've gone through that? it, yeah. It's yeah. like the best hundred bucks I've spent. It's the best masterclass out there. I think it's the number one masterclass. And he's just, you know, a, a spectacular human. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, it just comes down to, dude, you got to just fucking be a human being. It's so hard. There's so many times I want to take people and shake them. You know, we were in Arizona not too long ago in Sedona. And I don't know how I got suckered into going one of these presentations to, like, look at one of these houses. And the salesperson was just reading a script. And I just wanted to shake the person. I was like, dude, like just chill out. Like, just be a person, like, just hang out with me, build rapport. You build rapport by being a person. There's no book. I mean, clearly they had read a book on building rapport and they were like, how is the weather at where you're at? And your kids like to vacation a lot, don't they? And I was just like, I was just, you can smell it. Yeah. You can smell it. But the fact is the people that are really good at fucking selling, they don't do any of that shit. Totally true. You know, it's just about being a person. You're just a human. The, the greatest sales happen when you ask questions. And I teach this to people all the time. You just ask questions and you become a decision architect. Another great book called Nudge, which talks about this, about how we can become architects 
of decisions. Like one of my favorite guys, this guy, Darren Brown. Do you know this guy, Darren Brown? No, oh. I, I know the book Nudge. Was he the author, Darren Brown? No, no. no. Okay. So Darren Brown is a mentalist. He's a British mentalist. Absolutely brilliant guy. If you ever watch his videos, he's the guy that goes out into Times Square with a bunch of uh, cut up pieces of paper that look like money. And he ends up buying jewelry. He buys flat screen TVs just by using persuasion just by using person and he gives it all back. It's just right. a, it's a, it's a, a, it's a show. It's a show. It's a show. It's a tactic. But Darren Brown is amazing. He wrote a book too called happy. Um, but it's, it's not about this stuff, but so D Darren's amazing because he can kind of, you know, manipulate these arts. But when you see him, the, the thing that makes him so relatable is one of Caldini's principles. It's just likability. He's like just one of us. He's a bro. And when you sit with him, you know, he makes you feel like, you know, you become disarmed by the fact that it's just a normal person and he's relatable. So if you want to sell shit, become relatable. Fucking just relate to me. Like if this salesperson, I mean, I don't know if I would have bought whatever the fuck they were selling, but they would have been way closer to selling me whatever it was that they were selling if they were just a human being. Like just sit down, you know, like here, have a cigar, have a drink. Like let's just, let's just talk. Let's just be people. Let's start with that. Yeah. And I talk about that in, you know, there's a great story in my book. I talk about how I got flown out on a private jet to Tokyo, and it turns out that it was the Yakuza that was flying us out, trying to <laughs> trying to get a hold of my company. And it's a crazy story, but you know, in those days when I would travel to Asia, in Asian culture, you sit and you talk maybe for two, maybe for three meetings before the topic of business even comes up. They just want to get to know you. They want to just like, what kind of person are you? What kind of human are you? Right? Do you eat like I do? Right? Do you be, break bread with us? Let's just relate as people. And that's something that's so missing today yeah. that I think mil millennials really don't get, right? Because they're swiping, even when they're dating, right? They're not approaching other human beings. They're just swiping. Everything is a fucking, you know, swipe. Everything is a, is a click, and so that concept of like relating humanity is, is, is a lost art. And, and, you know, what Chris teaches in tactical empathy is really that realizing that everything around you has been conveyed from one person to the next, from another human to another human. And it, it goes full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning of this interview. There's lots of different ways to do it. Money's just the easiest way. There's other ways. And if you can learn how to do that, you can hack life fairly easily. This is, this is so great. And, and any of my coaching clients that are listening to this are probably giggling right now because I have this thing that I say all the time. Uh, I coach loan officers as well. And I can always tell when our coaching clients are, get, are, are getting ready to take the coaching seriously. And maybe that's a day in, maybe that's a year in because they'll email me or they'll call me and be like, all right, I'm ready to make my calls. What's the script? And this is straight out of Chris's Voss's book, Chris Voss's book. And I just say, hey, okay, here's the script. You just call the realtor and you say, hey, Bill, this is Scott Groves. Did I catch you at a bad time? And when their brain kind of short circuits and then they're like, no, 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 you caught me at a, at a fine time. What's going on? The script is you be a fucking human. And you just talk to them about what's going on in their life and their business. And you try to make friends because people want to work with people they want to work with, right? They don't want some bullshit script. They don't want a sales pitch. They don't want your boiler room file of facts. They just want you to talk to them about a human being. And if they like you enough, they'll send you a lead. And then when you fuck up and they don't like you anymore, they won't send you a lead. And then you go do the accusation audit, which is also in Chris's book. And then you try to repair the relationship. And and I think the, the $99 Instagram course or the, you know, the masterclass that isn't Chris's class 
class tries to teach everybody these pre-packaged like sales things that just to your point, man, they feel gross. You can smell them coming a mile away. And, and I don't know why those continue to sell. Yeah, it's true. You know, interesting thing is I was always a, a student, you know, of these guys and, you know, there was this book that came out, I think it was nineties or in the early two thousands called the game. This guy, Neil Strauss. Totally remember. You know, yeah. Back, right. And it was all about like how to pick up girls and stuff. And I'm sure all that's been canceled out by cancel culture. But one of the, you know, kind of interesting things was a lot of these guys were teaching like, Hey, so this is what you say. And this is the script you say to walk up to a girl and this and that. And that sold, right? Those kinds of things sold because people want to have that scripted solution. They want to have the, hey, do A, B, and C, and you'll get. But the fact is that it's, it, it's not that. It's the guy that just sits back and creates that environment, and the women come to him. That guy's the guy making the killing. It's not the guy that's just reading off the scripts of, like, you know, whatever those lines are, or however they're supposed to be said, right? It, it, it's funny because... Um, you know, oftentimes when I would travel to Asia, one of the things I learned was that Asian women, particularly Japanese women, love to dance flamenco. Now, flamenco is a type of Spanish dancing that involves clapping, and it's a very passionate style of dance. And I would watch these women, and beautiful women, and they were meticulous in their movements. But when I would go to Spain to watch flamenco shows, and by the way, I couldn't dance to save my life. I just enjoy watching good dance. And you would drink the wine and, you know, watch. watch then you can think you can dance after and about two bottles of wine. After two bottles, yeah. But I, I would never be so foolish. I know there's a few skills that I should never have. So I, I realized that the Japanese women, I was like, there's something that's it's just not as enjoyable to watch in Japan flamenco even though you know yeah it's not from here or whatever but i would watch him doing hip-hop dance or whatever and that was fine but the flamenco i just didn't get and i was in spain and i walked up to you know one of the the masters who was who was there doing the you know singing dancing and i i explained to him and i said what is it that you guys are doing differently you know these guys are doing all the moves perfectly and i've, I've watched these japanese women do it perfectly when i was in japan and he said buddy it's not the perfection that makes us great it's the imperfection it's the mistakes and I realized in that moment that it was exactly what you and I are talking about. It's the humanity that we're seeing. It's the fact that they're fallible people. And even though this is their hometown, they're in Sevilla in Spain doing this dance, it's, it's the fact that the guy's voice breaks in the middle of the song. It's the fact that the dancer does the move with passion and skips a step. Like It's all that stuff that makes it great. But when it gets translated into a culture that's 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 a beautiful culture in its own, I, I love Japanese culture. I think Japanese food is probably one of the the greatest food in the world, and people will argue with that. But you know, who's so bent on perfection that the perfection stops it from being perfect? It's 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 that adage of 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 trying so hard that you lose the point. Yeah. And it, and it definitely takes away, I mean, the word that's coming to my mind is sexiness because um, I'm very attracted to Hispanic women. My wife's Hispanic. And there's something in to your point that in imperfection, there's just something lovable and sexy about it where it's like, I don't want to see a robot do a flamenco dance. Like, right. like I can get that on AI or something. I want to see a human being and to your point and all their fallibility. That's kind of what's, what's alluring or attractive. Absolutely. Yeah. So of course, it's, I mean, it's why people buy Italian cars. I mean, I've had almost every Italian, you know, sports car 
car supercar in the world. And, you know, all due respect to the Italians, you know, the Germans make more reliable cars. But the Italians, you know, like one of the greatest cars of all time is the Lamborghini Countach. An absolutely gorgeous car that every kid in the 80s had hanging on his wall. He had probably had, you know, like a, a poster of Christy Brinkley on on one thing and totally. a poster of this this red Lamborghini Countach with this jet wing. I know exactly. I can picture the poster from like my sixth grade, you yeah. know, uh, birthday party that I got from grandma or something. Like yeah. one day you're going to have this car. And it's a spectacular car, probably one of the most unreliable pieces of equipment in the world. And when you look <laughs> at it, it was full of imperfections, but it's that imperfection. You look at the Ferrari Testarossa, another beautifully designed car, remarkable, right? It was in Miami Vice and all these films. And you look at it and the fucking door, it's nearly impossible to get your hand inside the thing of the Testarossa to open it up because it's got these slits that look really like beautiful but the thing is imperfect, but it's in those imperfections, in those weird like design flaws where you get a thing of absolute beauty. And our minds work a lot in the same way. That's what, that's what makes us human, man. We're, we're all fucked up. We're all have these, these flaws that make us you know, amazing. And the, the continual striving for this perfection, it's, it's, it's an illusion. It's what Alan Watts calls Maya. It's, a, it's, it's completely what causes us to be lost. Whereas, you know, if we can come back to what you teach and what I teach, which is just be a fucking human, relate to people, even on Amazon, when you're writing the descriptions for your product, write it like you're describing the product to your best friend. This is the best fucking USB. I mean, you can't say fucking, but this is the best darn USB thing in the world because, you know, it won't get stuck in your computer's drive and mess your stuff up as quickly as the other one. Great. Right. People will buy it the best dongle ever the best dongle ever <laughs> i'm gonna say chris is gonna i can see chris's uh wheels over there turning he's like i'm gonna start selling dongles on amazon he's like he's become an expert in dongles and connective uh equipment so uh, yeah. i think i think i think i'm gonna lose my audio engineer here to sell it <laughs> on amazon um i've got to ask just because i'm part of a dad's group and you're a dad and you know we we joked about your father's greatest ambition was for his son to be a lawyer 30 years later is your dad pretty proud of you and excited that you didn't become a lawyer or a doctor I think so. I think my dad still to this day, you know, he's an old Persian man and I think he struggles with understanding what I do. He still doesn't understand. So, you know, he's a little bit like, what do you do again? You selling the pills? Are you selling the pills again? You know, I don't understand what is it that you do, but it looks like you have a lot of money. So good. You know, my, my, my dad's like that, you know, he's, he's, he's old, he's stubborn, you know, he's got, his way that he feels, you know, life should be. And he's living by his own reality distortion field. I mean, I love the guy and, um, you know, we've got a, a good relationship and, you know, he's a good grandfather to my son and, you know, but you know, my dad's, my dad's who my dad is, you know, and he has his own limitations and he, you know, he never got past that. Right. Unfortunately. Right. So, yeah. What, and what are you most proud of over the last 30 years? I mean, you've accomplished a lot. You, you've seen a lot of highs and lows and obviously, you know, it's, it's easy to point to your lovely wife and, and, and your son, but what, what are you most proud of at this point in your life that you're either working on or a portion of your journey that you're like, man, I'm really glad that happened. Sure. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, being a family guy, family first always is you know, my son and my wife, you know, family always comes first. And, you know, it's amazing having a kid, you know, especially having a boy because I can teach him all the things that I wish I knew when I was a kid. So that's, that's awesome. And being a dad and I, 
you know, been in, uh, you know, dad's groups as well, which are incredibly inspirational and therapeutic for, for dad. So anybody who hasn't been in those definitely see if you could find one and do men's work and, you know, be in a dad's group, which is a, a, a fantastic place to be. I think, you know, telling my story through my book that's coming out has been something that I've, I've really been focused on and I'm super proud of, you know, just of myself that I managed to, you know, put this book together. And, you know, you, you think about it, you know, when you have a crazy ride like mine, you think, you know, one day, man, I'm going to write a book about this. And one day they're going to make a movie about it. And you think that, and I, I just imagine how many guys think that and it just never gets done. And I feel, you know, pretty accomplished that I, I finally got this book out that's been in my head for, you know, since the nineties and I'm super psyched to see what's going to happen with it. And I think, you know, people are enjoying it. I'm getting great feedback. I've got great people who've endorsed the book. Like, you know, like I said, like Nolan Bushnell and Keith Ferrazzi and Jay Samet, my buddy who wrote Future Proof You and Chris Voss wrote the intro. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, it's as, as a writer, you don't really make that much money writing the book, but you know, good thing is I don't need the money for that. So I'm excited to just get out and try to impact people and tell my story and inspire people to make money. But also, you know, my course, every time I see one of my students, you know, being able to quit their job and be like, dude, now I'm selling full time on Amazon and this is fucking great. I work two hours a day and I'm making more than I did before. Like my wife, for example, took my course. Um, after <laughs> that's, we were, that's awesome. By yeah. The way. After we were together, she was a uh, well-known publicist. She worked right under Kofi Annan for the United Nations. Wow. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the most respected publicists in New York. She still is. She still has her agency and we had our kid and she was like, you know, I can't work for, you know, government or semi-government work anymore. She's like, I just can't do it, you know, cause she's, she's big into social justice and, you know, um, you know, trying to make the world a fairer place. And, you know, she's still into doing that work. She produced stuff. She was, she was the last person to interview uh, Anthony Bourdain wow. on, on TV. Yeah. She did the whole thing on uh, Tehrangelis in, um, in Westwood. Uh, she was one of the last interviews that, or I should say Anthony Bourdain interviewed her. And so she's like, oh man, you know, like she wants to be a mother, but you know, she, she would like to also have some work. So she started an Amazon company and throughout, even, you know, throughout having our kid, she works one, two hours a day and she's created a business that's worth several millions of dollars. And Amazing. she's the number one seller of, um, you know, craft, crafty type products, uh, very flowery, very female products, but she does amazing on Amazon and she's got a whole team and we teach this too, uh, virtual assistants all over the world in Nicaragua and Venezuela who manage her entire business. So she's pretty hands off. She can be an awesome mom, you know, every night she cooks dinner and, and does all those amazing things and still she's running a great business. So she helps out her folks and her family and her sister and, you know, she's able to do all that and, you know, and she's doing phenomenal well so that that inspires me if i'm able to pass on some of this you know fairy dust that's you know come to me from all these years of entrepreneurship and i can share that with other people and inspire them to do well then i think that's a pretty good place for me to be at this point in my life and i like doing cool shit so 
cool shit and cool cars is always important. Yeah. Um, two questions I always like to end with, cause I, I can't believe we're already coming up on two hours. Um, the first question is what's the question I forgot to ask you? Cause you know, everybody has such a crazy story in their life and so much experience. There's always some question I forget to ask that people want to get out there in story form. And then my second question, if you want to ponder on that first one is, you know, we're filming this in July of 2021 and hopefully there's not a Delta variant and a Lambda variant and whatnot, but what are some, what are some things you're either looking forward to personally or professionally to getting back to now that some of the mask mandates are going away and it's a little bit easier to travel and whatnot. So first, what's the question I forgot to ask you that we should have asked? And then what are you looking forward to getting back to right now in uh, 2021? Yeah, I think, okay. So a lot of people like to ask me what it's like when you make your first million. And remember I made to a billion dollars in revenue. So the first million is really interesting and I'll tell you why. The reason why is because if you're doing it right, won't even notice that it happened. The train is just going through another stop. And that's one of the craziest things. I didn't even notice when I had made my first million. It's not like I stopped and there was some ticker tape parade and like, yay, we made a million bucks. It was just one stop through a lot of train stops, a train station far away. So that's an amazing thing. You know, somebody said that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that's, that's really true. So if something doesn't feel right, don't do it. Look for something that does feel right to you. And there's a lot of amazing opportunities out there. But at the end of the day, I really feel that you got to follow your gut. But at the same time, you got to verify. So you got to make sure that you have checks and balances so that what you're really trusting is your gut and not your insecurity. And break that down a little more. Cause I think that's okay. really, I think that's really like some old sage wise knowledge there. Like trust your gut, but not your insecurity. Cause I've fallen that before where I'm like, Oh, this is the right thing to do. You know, I'm puffing myself up, but it was really my insecurities taking over. So maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah. I had a good friend, a guy named Stuart Wilde, and he was an author in the 1980s was one of the founders of the new age movement. He taught people like Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer and all these guys, you know, he was, uh, um, you know, he, he was oftentimes talking to Tony Robbins and a lot of these guys, he was one of the early, early guys in the human potential personal development movement. And one of the things Stuart was, he was a definitely a degenerate gambler as well. So we would often go out and gamble in different places and he liked to drink and he liked to do all the bad things that you're not supposed to do when you're a self-help guru. And I remember him telling me, you know, when we were at casinos, so we would count cards, oftentimes playing blackjack, and we did incredibly well doing that back in the days when it was, I think, a lot easier to do that kind of thing. And he would always teach me, you know, play your hunch, it'll have your lunch. And that was kind of his motto. <laughs> and this is coming from somebody who really was like, I mean, dude, I don't really believe so much in this stuff, but really verging on like somebody who was as close to psychic as I think anybody could get. Like a guy that had a real bulletproof fucking intuition. Like, I don't know how he did it, but he would just know shit. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a science-based guy. And like, you know, I don't really fuck. There's, there's an explanation for fucking everything. Science can explain pretty much everything. And there's some things that we just don't fucking know. And outside of that, I don't think there's much. But there would be times where he would just like know shit where I'd be like, how the fuck did he know that? And it was just, you know, I think over the years, he developed like this intuition, this gut sense that he had a way of checking it 
against his intuition. So I think oftentimes, you know, there's that inner voice that we have. And that inner voice will tell us something. We all have that inner voice. That inner voice tells us all kinds of shit. So how do you know when to believe that inner voice? It's that quality, that trait that you can develop, right? Like in jujitsu, for example, sometimes you might not be at a mastery level. You might not be at a brown belt or a black belt level, but there's a guy on top of you and he's trying to strangle you. He's trying to fucking choke you out however he's doing. You might not know the counter to that, but you follow your gut and you get out of it. How did you know that? Maybe you saw it and you paid attention. You saw somebody else doing it and there's something about you that remembered that. And in that moment, in that moment of survival where your conscious mind was quieted, your true intuition came into play and you were able to execute on that. So I, I, can, I can leave you with that. So my friend Wayne Boss, who's an Australian businessman, he's a business mogul. I think he's a billionaire. He, he claims he's not. He says he's, he's just a millionaire. Genius guy. He comes into troubled companies, buys them for you know song and a dance, turns them around into mega companies, and then sells them for hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. He's a friend and a mentor of mine. He teaches us three things. He says that if you want to win, you got to have three things. Knowledge courage and action. And I, I have this outlined in my book. So knowledge is the information that you need. How do you get knowledge? You can buy knowledge, you can borrow knowledge, you can steal knowledge, you can rent knowledge, but you got to have the knowledge. Without it, it's difficult to take that first step. So if I said, hey, Scott, mean you go jump out of a plane tonight and uh you know the valley right there you'd be like what the fuck i've got kids i don't like it's a bad idea it's a bad idea we wouldn't do it but if me and you had practiced for six months and studied with the best i was like here's a navy seal the best of the best here's the best equipment me and you've watched all the videos we've taken the courses we've done the practice things right and i was like scott now's the time let's go bud you'd be like dude i'm packed ready to go let's fucking hit it why because you have the knowledge that's the only difference the only dif- differentiator the knowledge then gives you courage, which is what we need. Because we're all lacking courage because we don't have the knowledge. Once you have the knowledge, it gives you the courage. And then the third element, which is what nothing happens without, and I'm sure you teach this to your coaching clients as well, is action. Got to take the action. Nothing in this world happens without action. So knowledge, courage, action. If you have those three things, There's no act that you can't conquer. There's no task that you can't do. There's no adversity that you can't overcome. So good. Yeah, I I remember talking to a buddy of mine who had all the knowledge in the world and that should have led to courage, but there was some disconnect where he could just never take the action. And he was a great human being and luckily he made a lot of money in another avenue. But as a loan officer, I was always thinking of him. I was like, hey, Tony, I'm like, you gotta be like, 20% 20% dumber or 20% smarter and you would be like the number one loan guy in the world because you've got all the knowledge, you've got all the chops, but there was some insecurity, right? Instead of just trusting his gut and picking up the phone call or picking up the phone and making the calls and and getting in touch with these realtors who he would have won over instantly because of how smart he was and how talented he was as a loan officer. There was some insecurity there that stopped him from making the calls and then he never took the action and, I, and I'm so glad he made a ton of money in another realm and, and he's retired 
hard now. Um, but I just remember looking at him like, there's something about you. Like you got to be 20% dumber or smarter because you're just not following through on the action part. Because if you did, you would crush me in production. Like I wouldn't have a, a chance because he was such a bright guy. And so it's, it's interesting that if you're missing one of those three components or you let the insecurity settle in, like you're, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah. That's up. That's absolutely right. And you're, you're so that was your first question. And what was your last question? things you're looking forward to getting back to? Yeah, man. So I, you know, like most people, I think, you know, COVID was great for business. You know, it was super unfortunate and sad that, you know, we lost a lot of lives and got hurt and it seems like we might not even be fully out of it now. I mean, right. parts of the world are still going on shutdown. I think, you know, the, there were a lot of lessons learned, so I think it's not without its advantages, even though, you know, again, it was a great tragedy, and I don't want to you know, put anything beyond that. I know a lot of people lost people, and that's all, you know, sad and tragic. It was good for a lot of businesses, though. You know, a lot of businesses thrived. There was some businesses that didn't make it, but, you know, in truth, a lot of those businesses weren't going to make it anyway. Some right. were, but a lot weren't. A lot of them were on their way out anyway. And I think COVID definitely taught us a lot of lessons. And, you know, I think, look, moving forward, I'm looking forward to traveling with my family again. That's one of the most important things in our lives. You know, and I, I agreed with my wife, you know, when my kid was born, we said, hey, you know, no matter what, we're going to pack this kid up when he's a little baby in a backpack and we're going to go. We're going to go to the pyramids in Mexico. We're going to go to the pyramids in Egypt. We're going to go to Santorini. It doesn't matter where we're going to go. We're taking him with us and we're going traveling. Because back to what we were talking about, as far as grit goes, I think, you know, martial arts, like we said, is, is super important as far as, you know, being able to build discipline. But travel also. Travel does something where it just opens you up, gives you transformative experience, seeing how other people live, you know, going to India and you see a million rickshaws buzzing past and people crawling on the street and just the madness of those kinds of worlds. Or going to Thailand and watching elephants and monkeys and, you know, eating that amazing food and just being exposed to these different cultures, there's something in travel that opens something up in us where, you know, I, I, I know that you've done some traveling and I've traveled all over the world. When you meet another traveler that's been to one of these places that you've been to, it's like your kindred spirits. You can talk to totally. you know, you're completely connected. And it's because they've had that same transformative experience that you've had. So I think really, you know, these are some of the essential things, but mo most, mostly for me, you know, one of the things I was really looking forward to getting back to is my workouts and getting back on the mats, um, in, in the dojo, getting back to jujitsu, which has brought so much to my life and also traveling with my family. But I think that's so important. That's awesome, man. So, um, I dude, I feel like there's another two hours we could talk about in the book. So when somebody options the right to the book into a movie, um, I want to have you back and, and really dive in even deeper into the book and hear more about the story. Cause there there's five stories coming to the top of my head that I'm like, Oh, we should have got to that. We should have got to that. Cause there's, there's just good stuff from your journey in the nineties, but man, Shaheen, I, I really appreciate you being here, being on the podcast. Hopefully we can have you back again soon. And, uh, when I write my next book, I'll have you do the forward and Chris do the, 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 what's the, the extra, the, the, the forward and the, the preface, the preface. Yeah. So I'll have Chris write the preface and you do the forward. Uh, but Hey man, thanks for being on. It means a lot to me. Yeah. Thanks man. I, I'm honored to be on. And you know, this is the 